0: Hello, I'm Holly Turn. Thank you for joining us today on a Climbing Business Journal podcast. At CBJ, we inform, connect, and inspire those who work in the climbing industry. Today, we're talking to route setter, Sierra McMurray. We talked about everything from the sustainability of a route setting career, self-care for setters, and communication techniques on sensitive topics route setters might encounter in a workplace. Before we begin, I wanna give a shout out to our sponsors because without them, CBJ and this podcast would not be possible. Essential Climbing is a new name for a group of brands that have served climbers, gyms, and home walls for decades. They distribute premium quality polyurethane holds manufactured at Aragon. Imported fiberglass macros and wood volumes have a line of patented adjustable walls and even design and install custom climbing walls and padded floors. Near brands include Kumiki, Everactive, Expression, Squadra, Lapis, and Axis. Learn more at EssentialClimbing.com. Strati Climbing installed and refurbishes incredible landing surface for climbing gyms, rec centers, schools, and home walls. Since all floors wear down over time, Strati often works with facilities to resurface old landing areas, extending the light, and to save money to avoid the landfill. Family owned and operated, the team at Strati have been installing padded floors for over a decade. Learn more at straticlimbing.com. Wondering whether you can give the audience a little bit of background, Sierra, maybe your years of climbing, a kind of origin of a who, what, when, where, why? Yeah. Thanks, Holly. I'm Sierra.
1: My pronouns are they, them. I have been climbing for, I think, six years, maybe a little over six years now. I started climbing in California at Pacific Edge in Santa Cruz. That was my like first gym, then moved to Montana for a little while for school and Started climbing at the gym up there called Freestone and started setting. So I've been setting for almost three years now. So six years of climbing and three years of setting experience. That's great.
0: Um, Do you have any notable influences, people that really, really played a huge role in how you developed as a setter early on? That entire gym up
1: there and the entire crew was super influential on my setting experience and my setting style and how like I approach a setting day. Specifically, Aaron Nicholson, Carson Wilde and Scott Goodwin up in Missoula. They have always been so supportive, really believed in me, but then also challenged me a lot too, Mm -hmm. you know? I think like shorter climber and I have specific strengths and very specific weaknesses and they always challenge Mm -hmm. me to like kind of look beyond that with my setting. And just gave me the opportunity, which I was so appreciative of and like respected me and my opinion, even coming into it with so little setting experience, which I always was super, super grateful for. And those guys up there are definitely. Yeah, Yeah.
0: that's always great to hear when people have a great first setting experience. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there one big philosophy that you've taken away from that crew that you still use in your everyday setting now? I think we all learned
1: a ton about communication.
0: You know, I think the old school style of things in
1: the past, even at Freestone was very much, you know, like the, the highly sarcastic, a little bit of a, maybe bro-y vibe isn't really the best way to put it, but just like masculine energy for sure. (laughs) Feedback in this really like indirect and maybe at times not really supportive way. And I think we all changed a little bit in our crew and and changed the way that we talked to each other and the way that we gave feedback and what we were really trying to say like i think our communication really really improved over the years and learning when to like you know have that playful banter and learning when to get serious and really talk about something and be professional and respectful and i think our communication was really which developed over time was really the biggest thing that led to such a supportive experience overall.
0: Absolutely. I think communication is something that a lot of setting crews are maybe not looking immediately, but it's one of the biggest aspects of any well functioning crew, like setting or not really, right? Yeah, we're all supposed to learn how to talk to each other. So at this point in your career, can you offer some like insights or thoughts on the current professional standard of the setting industry right now? We know that, you know, gyms here and there have different ways of approaching things. There's some gyms that use the three rope system, one rope and ladders. What are your thoughts in terms of where we stand right now? I've sat at a couple gyms now, either
1: as a guest setter, new gyms moving around. I've definitely seen it done in a lot of different ways. And I think that's kind of the tricky part. I do see that we're all collectively like moving in a very specific direction. I think some gyms are getting there faster than others, but everyone seems to be aware that like, there's a certain level of professionalism that now has to start showing up in setting crews. And in, you know, that professional professionalism, a lot of times looks like a certain level of respect, certain level of communication style. And I'm, seeing it in a lot of ways like sure the technical way of you know i think we're we're all getting to the point where it's like ooh okay like rigging ropes can be kind of dangerous sometimes and i think we all maybe need to have like a better standard for it i do think we are trending in that direction too i think the professionalism is kind of changing interpersonally more than anything there's this collective understanding of you know a lot of new faces are showing up at gyms and a lot of new people are showing up in the climbing communities and we need to mm-hmm. adapt And learn how to welcome those people and welcome those new setters, and to do that, we got to learn how to communicate effectively and appropriately, and you know how to handle relational repairs and conflict and things like that. And I think gyms are slowly moving to understand how to be more inclusive and that level of professionalism. And some are getting there more than others, you know. And and I, I think too, like there's that
0: old school style of things I think is just, is changing a little bit. Absolutely. Is there anything of that old school ethic that you think we should keep moving forward? The old school stoke, but also maybe some of the old school
1: humility a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think there's like some of that old school of like, oh, this is, you know, kind of silly. And we're all just like showing up here to, you know, some sort of rock Mm -hmm. gym and putting stuff on the wall and I think that humility is like still really important to hold on to mix in with that similar like stoke and grit, I think
0: is really helpful. For one, I'm a big believer of tradition, but I also know that as times change and, you know, styles change, sometimes that stuff won't Continue to go forward with us. But there's so much part of that old school work ethic and mentality of putting your head down and just working that I do respect. And I hope that that continues to follow us as we develop as an industry for sure. When we chatted before in person, you mentioned that you don't know if route setting is going to be a lifelong career for you. And from my experience of other route setters out there, I know that a lot of people have echoed a similar thought. Can you elaborate that a little bit more? For example, what do you want to see in the industry to make you think that this can be a lifelong career, like sustainability wise? For me, you know, I I do
1: have outside career goals for, you know, I'm a biologist. I have career goals towards graduate school and higher education in terms of that kind of thing. So setting is pretty nerve wracking in that way of like, oh, I want to continue this for as long as I can, but I don't know if it's sustainable while pursuing like other career pursuits. And I've slowly gotten more optimistic around that. I think it was after my L1 that I was like, oh, it really solidified how much I love this and mm-hmm. how much I want to continue doing it for as long as I can and and mm-hmm. hopefully finding ways to allow it to work. And I, I think there are parts of setting that already make it really accessible to be doing multiple other things with your life. Being a part-time setter and coming in a couple of days a week and maybe more mm-hmm. flexible hours and a flexible schedule allows for you to be able to pursue those other passions and have it be something that you can continue doing for as long as you want. It's taking it to that next step that can sometimes feel like oh I don't know if I'm in the right life stage for that because it is such a commitment. It it does require a lot of finances, you know, like to be going to these clinics, to be traveling for comps and or to like even be taken jobs at gyms and that's the tricky part that i've seen a lot of people kind of get nervous about is the the decision to go from like yeah i'm a part-time setter i'm also doing this other gig on the side and thing like that to i'm dedicating my life to this mm-hmm. i think is really the spookiest part because there's so many unknowns to it and we haven't really seen it demonstrated for very long of what a sustainable long lasting highly enjoyable career and setting looks like. I think a lot Mm -hmm. of us haven't been exposed to forever career of it for most of us. So I don't really Mm -hmm. know what it looks like. And I don't know how possible it is in terms of, yeah, the amount of time commitment and the pursuit of other things. And I think there's just like a two woods diverged and two paths diverged in a yellow wood or whatever the the story Mm -hmm. is. And, yeah. I feel like you get to the fork in the road and you kind of have to decide of like, okay, am I really taking this to the next level or am I going to let it be something I'm doing part-time?
0: I get that a lot. Um, I know a lot of root setters have other mm-hmm. part-time jobs in the side, myself included. I do a lot of writing work on the side and you say you do a lot of biology work on the side. So for the setters who are in this fork in the path when they are trying to decide whether or not they want to go all in and maybe pick up other gym duties like coaching or maybe progress into a head setter role someday. What kind of advice do you have to offer for them and how to make this decision? Maybe questions that you asked yourself. I think for me,
1: it's it's kind of weighing those other passions. Like biology is something I don't want to lose and I do have a higher priority for it than setting. And I Mm -hmm. think that's important for me to understand when it comes to my like future choices. It's just the reflection of like, okay, what is most important to me? Like, what do I want to prioritize? What do I see myself doing in 10 years? And if setting is one of those, and if it's on the top priority list where you're willing to make sacrifices for it, then I Mm -hmm. think that's ultimately the best thing to understand and to be able to understand that means you can make the right choices for it make the right choices in terms of like okay yeah maybe i'm willing to relocate for a really good position maybe i'm willing to spend this money in my savings to be able to go to this clinic it's understanding where that priority lies for you and and also that it's not a terrible thing if it's not the top thing on your list even if like yeah you've got some other things you want to pursue professionally that it can't you can't have like a a fulfilling and enjoyable setting career. Like you absolutely can, even if you decide to not, you know, one day be a salaried
0: headsetter. Those are really great questions. And I'm sure a lot of setters out there are asking themselves that question. You mentioned sacrifice. I think a lot of setters say that a sacrifice that a setter might make is sacrificing their own training and climbing. I'm wondering if that's something that you're dealing with, have dealt with, or is trying to balance right now. Absolutely. 100% one of the biggest sacrifices
1: that you make when it comes to setting. It's also just like your personal climbing too, just ultimately gets affected. It's so hard on the body and takes a lot of time that ultimately will just kind of affect you. I think there's ways to like rehab a little bit and to like do a lot of self-care where you can make training sustainable. And I've seen people be able to like fully train, fully give themselves, like they're all to their climbing career along to route setting. But I also think that's a really specific type of athlete. And I am not one of those (laughs) athletes. I had to find the balance of like, okay, like if I'm setting three days a week, I can allow myself to climb like one day on the weekends, and I'll allow myself like one hangboarding session during the week. But that's ultimately all my body can handle. Like, I think knowing your body's limits and also that, like, yes, you might sacrifice training, but setting does get you incredibly strong. And there is something really valuable to be said about running for three hours. That's a specific type of training that I think a lot of people don't expose themselves to. So Mm -hmm. I do think it gets you strong in specific ways. But I do also think there's a sacrifice when it comes to optimal training and also like injury prevention as well. Like it can be so hard on the body and can lead to injuries. And that's you know what it's been like for me. And so I think there's a balance a little bit. And it's just not gonna look the way that it might look for the regular climber, but I do Mm -hmm. think there's ways to make it work so that you can climb optimally and also still be
0: setting consistently. I really think that balance is probably the key to all of this. And the the reality is we set because we love to climb. So when it comes to sacrificing parts of your personal climbing, that can come feel very taxing on your mental health. When you're a new setter, I have experienced this myself, and I'm sure a lot of people have that the workload seems a lot. What is one of your number one tips to a new setter on how to train your body to handle that workload and get to a point where you feel comfortable doing the workload as well as climbing? Because setting is a labor profession we're using our bodies, we're in a construction zone of sorts, right?
1: Yeah, it's definitely manual labor. I think a lot of people that are interested in it but haven't done it yet don't realize how much actual manual labor it is. I like try to think back to especially when I was first learning how to set on ropes. And we didn't have the fancy Petzl harnesses, you know, the big wall stuff. We had the like Metolius big wall, which are like not even a smidge comfortable. And Mm -hmm. oh my God, my lower back was just incredibly, incredibly upset with me for months at a time. (laughs) Thinking back to it, you know, I, it was in the small moments where I ended up saving myself. And that's like what I recommend and and what I started teaching to the newer setters that we brought on was the certain things that you would do while you were setting that would lead to injury or just strain or just exhaustion. So like if you're, you're setting on the ladder and like, Oh, the ladder's not totally in the right position, but you could make it work, but you're going to be at this uncomfortable angle just in the beginning, I think it's so much more worth it to take the time to come back down, readjust your ladder, go back up. You're in a far better position that feels so much better on your body. Because over time, I think, especially when you're new and your body's not used to it, you can really tweak something by doing it just because you're not willing to move the ladder or make that small change. And it's the same on the rope too. You know, I, I think so many times it was like, oh, I missed put it placing a foot here. Like I, I'd be able to look below me and see that I was missing a feet and then just turn upside down, you know, and you're just like reaching, trying to put this right smear foot on. That would also really get me and would just one or two times doing that on a rope and I would just lose it. So I think catching yourself in those small moments is like, okay, it's more worth taking the time to like lower or move the ladder than to like tweak something. In my body. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like the physical tip that I can give. I think just being okay that you're going to be climbing less pretty soon. If you're really just beginning and getting into it, being okay that your relationship to climbing is going to change and allowing yourself to rest. Like that pressure to be like, oh, I haven't even gone into the gym this week. Learning to let go of that a little bit, I think is really essential to recovery in the beginning when
0: you first learn to set. Mm -hmm. I think when you put your passion and your career together, that's that's always hard, right? Like thinking mm-hmm. about what you just said about the foot chip and turning upside down. One thing that I really like to do, and I'm sure you do this too, is I put a foot chip where it's sort of where it's supposed to be, but mm-hmm. I leave it sort of hanging out of the wall. So I know it's not tight. Mm-hmm. I know it's not where it's supposed to be. And on the way down, I get it. These small things that For help sure. a setter, right? Right, exactly. Yeah.
1: Even putting a bolt, or just like writing a note in your phone, maybe of like, okay, fourth draw, three bolts to the right needs a foot, you know. And it's just like you're not willing to lower. You're not, you know, just like put a note in your phone, create a rule for yourself or something, mm-hmm. anything yeah. to like,
0: yeah, save the body a little bit. It's like doing the work now, so you save yourself later on in yeah. your career, right? He really talks about this either.
1: Like, I feel like I, I did not know about these like really really small things that show up so consistently every day and. And I see new setters doing it all the time. And I like wince, thought of it. Of like, oh, it's going to hurt your back so bad, <laughs> you know, and I think it's important to talk about too.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad we're talking about it. And as we talk about other professional things in the industry, and as we move forward, this industry is getting more and more standardized professional. I know we're still lacking the education channels that a lot of setters wish there was, but As the industry moves towards where we want to be, obviously, that's going to impact and benefit route setters. Who else do you think on a whole, a climbing or route setting or climbing gym industry, do you think the professionalization of route setting is going to benefit?
1: As we grow professionally, the professionalization grows, which inherently means like better forms of communication, stronger relationships on the crew. It's just like ultimately going to benefit everybody in the gym. I think the product will be better because people will feel they're able to communicate their needs, get, you know, consistent, supportive, even challenging feedback. Like all of that will create like a supportive environment for the setter to feel their best. And like they can express themselves the best, which ultimately means the best routes and Mm. the best blocks. And I think we all benefit from people feeling like good and supported and challenged in their jobs it'll come out in the set too. Like my my mindset going into a day is absolutely going to affect the quality of climbs that I can set. Climbing is such a mental sport and that definitely shows up in setting just as much. So, I think that professionalism and building those relationships on, you know, better forms of communication and respect for each other, I think
0: will just lead to better climbs. With about setting being such a young profession, a lot of people now um, who are in the industry are put into these roles of mentorship that maybe they didn't even think that they were going to be in. Who are some of your best mentors and you know why and how have they helped you?
1: You know, there's been really an important climbing mentors that kind of like show up unexpectedly. And you're like, oh, I've learned totally the most from them. One of my closest friends up in Montana, I learned a lot about how to find the Joy and climbing again after a while. You know, I I was starting to get pretty serious about it and feeling really focused, but that was also draining me in a way. And I connected with a friend who, like, helped me reconnect with the joy and like childhood enthusiasm of climbing, you know, by just like rolling around and (laughs) falling off and giggling and like finding the joy again, which I think has probably been one of the biggest lessons that I had to relearn. And so mm-hmm. they've definitely been a huge mentor to me. And then also I think, yeah, like my crew up in Missoula was just learned a lot. And I think learned a lot about also how to remove my own attachments, I think, to setting sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, like you, you get started, you get really attached to your climbs, you get really attached to this identity as well. And I think they were really able to help me like ground myself in terms of like, I am not a strong compression sloper climber and I can learn how to set it, but that might not mean I can like forerun it effectively and what that looks like and how I, you know, maybe communicate that a little bit when it comes to, you know, trying to figure out a grade for something or, you know, I think they were really helpful in helping me also find some of that humility and learning how to know when to take feedback and also know when to challenge it, I think was huge and especially after some time when I got like more comfortable and, you know, learned my own things, it was like, okay, like I know how to be like, Hey, this isn't my strong suit. This is my best guess. This is what I can give you. And also like a little bit of pushback too of like, Oh, I kind of disagree and here's why. And let's have a conversation about it. So I do think the biggest skill that I learned was like, yeah, how to give feedback, how to
0: receive feedback and knowing when to challenge it at times. I really like that. It kind of goes back to the beginning when you were talking about one of the biggest takeaways from that crew in Montana was communication, right? Mm -hmm. It's all about knowing how to express yourself. With the crew in Montana helping shape you into the setter who you are today, what do you think we as an industry can do now to become that crew for the incoming cohort of setters? I think there's a couple of things.
1: One, just highly advocate for climbing gyms to get a HR representative. <laughs> there are gonna be like interpersonal conflicts sometimes. there are gonna it's just like this is a workplace. It should also be treated like a workplace. I think a lot of times gyms kind of have this like, oh, we're a family. but that can lead to a lot of like cross boundaries or, some wiggle room. And I think like understanding that this is a profession, that this is an important respected profession is really essential. And that requires an HR department. Along with that, I think a real understanding of creating an actual structure of what it looks like to give feedback and what that feedback looks like and understanding that you're going to get a bunch of different people in the setting crew as time goes on and we progress and advance and you know, you're going to get people that don't understand sarcasm, or you're going to get people that receive feedback in a really specific way. And I think I'm having a structure, structure for how you communicate and also some flexibility with each person. Like when you're in an interview with a new setter that you're going to bring on understanding like, yeah, like, so how do you communicate? What is your communication style? How do you receive feedback? How do you give feedback? What does that look like? Because everybody's different. And I think being really good interpersonally and collaboratively is just going to be essential moving forward as we start to diversify our crews and then knowing how to just professionally like repair and move around conflicts. I think more diverse people are going to be joining setting crews and there, you know, is sometimes like inherent harm done, especially to marginalized groups from people that are not marginalized and understanding how to, safely and accountably move in those
0: spaces is gonna be essential as we move mm-hmm. forward as an industry. I'm really glad you brought that up because I kinda of wanna to talk to you about this. Your pronouns are they, them. minus she, her, mm-hmm. by the way, for the audience. Mm-hmm. And as someone who is underrepresented in the setting industry, and you are too, we know that industry is getting better. We know that the, the crews are getting more diverse out there. And people are making a very, very intentional effort to diversify the crew. Unfortunately, one statement that women and underrepresented route setters often hear out there is, you only got the job because you are insert minority group. I'm sure you've heard it. I've heard it a dozen times before. Mm-hmm. So what is your response to that statement? What do you have, what advice do you have to give for someone who maybe hearing that statement for the first time and is a little, you know, struck or shocked by? It?
1: Yeah, definitely. I've heard that so many times in so many different ways. That sentence is just gets restructured and whatever hobby or whatever career you're in, that sentence shows up in biology for me. I mean, it just shows up everywhere because it's just inherent misogyny. And, you know, it's this tool of, of oppression and putting people in their place and especially like femme and, you know, just women in general, like putting women in their place and my advice for someone who is hearing that for the first time of like oh you only got this position because you're a woman or you're of a marginalized group understanding that what they just said has absolutely nothing to do with you that is not constructive feedback that is not a real question that is a a tool of oppression and power that are, they are trying to use to put you in your place and that has nothing to do with you or your skill set or your career so i think first like separating yourself a little bit And understanding what that person is actually trying to do to you instead of just, you know, thinking that's like, oh, that's a comment. It's just, it really is completely unfair and unrelated. It's just misogynistic. Yeah, absolutely. In response to that question, you know, I think there's a lot of ways to go about it. I have gotten really tired over the years. (laughs) You know, I think like 20 year old of me would have come up with something really sassy, you know, and like, yeah, like I'm going to, you know, just smack him down with this, you know, <laughs> response. I've just gotten tired and I've gotten really tired of feeling like I have to defend myself to people who are not even open to having a conversation around it because that's ultimately what that mm-hmm. comment is, is just a tool to put me in my place rather than actually an inquisitive question. So my exhaustion towards men has led me to <laughs> not engage really you know you can hear it and i think you can just make some eye contact and a slight smile and just absolutely walk away like you do not owe that person anything any sort of energy or engagement towards it takes that away from you and acknowledge that it has nothing to do with you it's misogyny it's sexism it's whatever and and not engage or just be like oh that was misogynistic. Would you like to try again? You know? <laughs> like. But I think ultimately just walking away, like I'm sure somebody can come up with like a, a, a great response really quickly, but I know under emo- emotion that that would make me feel the best thing that I can do is not allow them to take any more energy from me mm-hmm. and know that it's just not true. You know, like I think there's just something to be said about having people of all experiences come and set a route of mm-hmm. everybody has a different relationship to climbing due to their identities their expressions that can make a really beautiful climb. That can make a really beautiful route setter. It's important. These diversities are important. It's important to hire women. Like I don't, you know, it's, it's important to hire women. It's important to hire black and people of color. Like, but those people did not get there because it was easy to get hired. If anything, it's really, truly the exact opposite. Um, And that's what I've just found. Yeah, is that, oh, it's actually been so much harder. I might get picked out, but also to be able to survive at a gym, especially when you were hired just because you're a woman is also like equally Mm -hmm. almost impossible. Like if you did not have the skills to be there and you were a woman, trying to survive that and stay at a gym like that I would not be able to do. So if she or they are there, they absolutely
0: have the skills that are deserving of that position. What I took away from that is SAS is great, but you can also just walk away if you don't want to give energy to this kind of response. I love it. That's mm-hmm. amazing. I think I'm going to take that for myself as well. Next time, I'll just turn around and... Walk the other direction without any explanation. <laughs> that I think that, honestly gets
1: the biggest, that gets the biggest response out of people is when you're just like, Meh, and they just like immediately turn around. They're like, what? <laughs> this what? You know, like, I think that's my best advice because you got to save yeah. yourself a little bit for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. Not everyone who says that have a bad intention, but I think that's what people don't really differentiate much. is intention and impact are two different mm-hmm. things. Even if That's you are true. making what you think is an observation, it has an impact on that underrepresented outsider to make them mm-hmm. continuously feel that she or they don't belong in this space. And internalized yeah. misogyny,
1: internalized racism are very real things. And you might not realize that that is what's occurring. But when, you know, someone comes forward from that marginalized identity and is saying like, hey, I think you have some like internalized misogyny around that comment. I think you have some internalized racism around that comment. Like then you have to take a step back and be like, oh, okay. Then that's what it was. There can be, you know, like, oh, I didn't intend for that, but we have things happening all the time inside of Mm -hmm. us and and a lot of structures and systems of oppression. And we have to be able to own that and move forward. And hopefully those people that make those comments can. Mm -hmm
0: and the people who are currently in leadership position whether you're a head setter or senior setter a director of setting anyone who's in a leadership position i'm sure a lot of you are asking yourselves like oh what can i do can you share some good examples of how root setters whether they're head root setters or directors of root setting have shown that are great in terms of creating equity in a space not just equality
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of ways to go about it. And I don't think it's really necessarily concrete. Like I think a lot of people want these like concrete answers and these like bullet points to like what to do to make yourself like a, you know, ally route setter. (laughs) For me personally, what has been important is, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of gyms pride themselves on, we let you put pronouns on your name tags and, you know, like we, you know, have queer members and queer staff and, and that kind of thing. But from what I've found is there's not a real conversation within the crew about how to communicate with somebody who's like gender diverse about their gender expression and about their identity. And I think that's where people miss the mark a little bit is they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll hire Sierra, a non-binary person. Like we're inclusive. We don't care about that kind of thing. But then what they don't do and what oftentimes happen is that doesn't necessarily mean that there's, Base and their language is safe for a non-binary person. They either don't know how to use they/them pronouns, they don't know what the difference between gender and sex is, you know, or, or even just how to ask somebody about it in a way that you know somebody's comfortable with, and what you can ask and what you shouldn't ask. And I think that's where a lot of places miss the mark is having an actual conversation with your crew before you hire people of marginalized identities and talk to them and give them resources so that they are safe people to work around. Like, I think that's what ends up happening is people hire a bunch of diverse people and they're like, yeah, we did it. It's inclusive, but it's not equitable. It's not a safe space. A lot of harm gets done. And then, you know, there's not even systems of learning how to repair. And I think that's the second thing is As you move towards hiring more diverse people who have different backgrounds, also knowing how to take feedback from them, how to tell them that there is a system and a structure for them to give feedback when harm has been done, especially around their identities. And knowing how to do that before you
0: hire people, I think is essential. Listen and communicate. Going back to
1: (laughs) that's just gonna be my go-to the whole time. Yeah. Listen, communicate, keep listening, keep communicating. Oh, you did something wrong. Listen and then communicate, you know. Yeah,
0: I think that's ultimately it. I love that. I think a lot of people listen just to respond. And that's Mm -hmm. a lot of traps that people fall into is Mm -hmm. you're not listening to respond, you're listening to empathize, to understand, to really, really take it in instead of just waiting for them to finish talking.
1: Exactly. And I, you know, and I think if route setting can humble you as a climber and humble you as a setter, then it also should be able to humble you to be able to take take feedback that's not related to climbing. That might be related to your communication style or some inherent biases or, you know, some, something. Mm -hmm. But hopefully, you know, with how much feedback and collaboration we do as route setters should hopefully set us up to be really good at feedback and collaboration that is unrelated to route setting as well. But sometimes that doesn't happen as
0: much. Yeah. I think about this side of the route setting industry a lot, because as we start to diversify the space and people of underrepresented, marginalized identities start to move into this space people inevitably get tokenized and I know that this is not the intention of a lot of people but for those who are widely represented out there what is something about tokenism that they might not even know about that you want to share that's a big
1: question I think um, I can say for me personally in terms of you know like the tokenism that shows up when I'm like you know a femme queer non-binary person I've noticed for me I think, Crews tend to like kind of do a check mark once they hire me or once they like bring me on for a day or something, they're like, Oh, we did it. Look, oh my God. They're femme and short. And they also have this pronoun thing going on, you know. And that's, (laughs) you know, kind of an exaggeration. But yeah, I think there's this like little bit of a checkbox that people see in terms of, you know, hiring one diverse person. And that's the thing too, is it misses the point a little bit because all that's doing is acknowledging that all you needed to do was hire them but mm-hmm. you're forgetting the fact that like oh i should be you know respectful of their identity i should be allow them to express and communicate in a way that might feel different than what i do allowing that diversity to actually change the crew a little bit mm-hmm. rather than oh we checked a box but so I inviting do- them yeah Sorry, yeah, yeah. what are you saying Holly? Yeah I don't know no, like awesome. inviting them into the space to like change the space rather than exactly like oh, they're another crew member. I'm gonna treat them the exact same way I treat Tom, you know and who's mm-hmm. you know assist you know white guy and it's just different. And then you should allow people of different identities and different backgrounds to be able to change the space. I think you mm-hmm. should be open to that idea. And I think a lot of times
0: it just people miss the mark on it a little bit. Absolutely. Inviting people is a starting point. It's not the mm-hmm. end point. And people Absolutely. miss that a lot. For sure. yeah. <laughs> Looking ahead at what's to come in the about setting industry and in your own career, what's something that you're really excited about? I've been getting excited about a couple of things. I think... I'm excited that things are
1: moving forward. We really are starting to like acknowledge what needs to be done and move forward, which is a nice first step. I am hoping it goes a lot farther than that, but I'm excited to see how setting changes, honestly. I, I think we're already seeing it in comp style setting, the different moves that are coming out of it and you know the different questions we're asking climbers on the wall. And I'm excited to see how, people from different backgrounds and different accessibilities are able to, once they start route setting, kind of change the game. I'm really, really stoked to see how queer, trans, femme people can start really changing the route setting game. And Black and Indigenous people of color, Like, I think we can learn so much. And I think this entire sport can really evolve and turn into such a such an incredible space. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how that happens and how it affects the climbing, how people show up at the gym and how people feel in their daily lives. Cause you know, the sport is so important to us and I'm really looking forward to the future with that. And, you know, we're all essential in those next steps for that goal. So Mm -hmm. yeah.
0: I think that's a great way to wrap things up Sierra. Thank you so much. I do want to close with a. Hopefully a joke. I'm not sure if this is funny at all. Um, we <laughs> okay. can cut it out. if it's not funny. How does a non-binary samurai kill his enemy or their enemy?
1: Oh, I feel like I've heard this. How?
0: They slash them. Oh, I like that one, actually.
1: That's good. I know. Okay. I, like, I'm i into that one. <laughs>
0: I think good. I, I think I'm pretty old,
1: I don't know, I've i heard a couple where I'm like, oh, OK, uh, but that one, it's like it's it's they slash them. It's incredible.
0: I really like it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to today's episode with Sierra. Conversations like these really make me appreciate what I do. Check us out next time. We'll be back with another episode and another guest soon. If you enjoyed what you heard, share this with a friend, tell a coworker, or give us a shout on social media. Thanks again. Until next time.